Well, we're going to come to a time now in God's Word. We'll look at a passage together. We'll talk about what it means and what it matters, why it matters and what we should do about it. Um, my first Sunday back of the year, um, bringing God's Word, and so excited to uh, be with you in this way. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, whatever it is, would you turn to Matthew chapter 8, uh, returning to our series in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 1. And when you found that, if you're able, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, uh, I will read this passage for us. Matthew writes this, when he came down from the mountain, that is the mountain where Jesus has just given his sermon on the mount, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed in that very moment. I wonder what would change in our lives today if Jesus said to you today, let it be done to you as you have believed in me. Finally, verse 14, when he entered, uh, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this passage together. Spirit of God, I ask now for the illumination of your word to our hearts and minds. Uh, Accomplish in us what it is you want to accomplish through this word. Uh, We believe this is a living word, um, not simply some historical document written down centuries ago. Would you give us a submission to what you say here and then accomplish every purpose that you have for each one of us individually as well as collectively today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Keep, ancient lands, your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. 
Many of you will likely be familiar with these words penned by Emma Lazarus in 1883, which are now immortalized in bronze on the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. The words themselves come from a poem that she wrote, which was originally about trying to earn money to build the pedestal. And to this day, they signal the welcome that hundreds of thousands of tempest-tossed immigrants and refugees experienced as they crossed the ocean in search of freedom and a new beginning in America. But what many are perhaps not as familiar with is the first verse of that poem, maybe just not quite as well-known or popular, which reads this, not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, and her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that Twin Cities frame." For the title of the poem itself is The New Colossus, which is a direct reference to the Colossus of Rhodes, which, if you didn't know, was this gigantic statue built in the third century, said to straddle both shores of the harbor in the Greek, uh, as you entered into the Greek city of Rhodes. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And what Lazarus was truly, she was trying to contrast with her poem, it seems, were two different symbols of power. Two different symbols of strength. One uh, imposing, uh, towering over all things, uh, uh, representing domination. And then the other, signaling welcome. Signaling maternal strength used on behalf of the powerless. These two extreme things contrasted together. So we're returning, as I said, after a break from uh, the celebration of Christmas to our teaching series through Matthew's gospel entitled Kingdom Come. Looking at Jesus as the king who brings God's kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And one of the main points that we've discovered already over the course of this series is that it's not only about understanding Jesus as the king bringing the promised kingdom, that's the point. But really, more than that, it's in seeing the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring as well. Which is especially relevant as we come to this passage today, which leads us out of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and now into his uh, regular day-to-day life and teaching. Because what we see here in our passage today is that the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring is a kingdom where captives are set free, a kingdom where sicknesses are healed, where outcasts are brought in. It's a kingdom much like what we have described for us in Revelation 21, a kingdom where tears are wiped away, where sickness and mourning and death are things that don't even exist anymore. A kingdom that I think every single one of us here would say, that's a kingdom I want to be a part of if such a kingdom existed. But what's entirely unique about Jesus and what I want us to focus on today in particular is how it is that Jesus brings this new kind of kingdom about. For as we just learned with that opening illustration, in the same way that that first Colossus, he straddled both shores of the harbor on the Greek island of Rhodes, Jesus straddles the applications of power represented by those two Colossuses, the old as well as the new. Towering above all others as the sovereign ruler and king of all who who commands and we must obey, as well as one who welcomes the tempest-tossed of this world. As we read this morning, it says, Come to me, 
all you weary and heavy laden, using his power on behalf of the powerless. He seems to straddle both of those shores in the way that he brings the kingdom. And we'll see Jesus straddling those applications of power as he demonstrates the kind of kingdom he came to bring with these three healing stories from our passage today. But as it relates to you and to me, as we try to consider, well, which application of power is truly the greatest? Is it to be the one who is ruling and domineering over everyone else? Is that the best application of power? Uh, is the best application of power to be one who is welcoming of the outcasts and using your power on behalf of the others? Is that the greatest? It's particularly as we try to decide this kingdom that Jesus is bringing with both of those, do, do I want to join in with his kingdom? Do I want to be a citizen of the kind of kingdom that he's bringing? And it's important as we try to decide which one we think is the greatest because, just to keep in mind, uh, the Colossus of Rhodes now doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> it exists only in, in history, in, in paintings and drawings like the one we saw. And Lady Liberty, yeah, well, I'll, I'll leave it to you to decide just how truly welcome the tempest-tossed refugees of the world still are in America today. As I see it, the only kingdom that is truly still standing strong and can make good on its promise of both loving sovereign rule as well as welcome to the tempest-tossed of the world and using its strength on behalf of them is the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring. And in order that we might perhaps see that all together ourselves today as well and that we might catch a fresh glimpse today of the truly powerful kingdom as well as the beautifully welcoming kingdom that Jesus came to bring, I want to look at our passage this morning in just three ways. I want to show you, first of all, the boundary-crossing nature of Jesus' kingdom. Then we'll look at the restoring nature of Jesus' kingdom. And then lastly, the absorbing nature of Jesus' kingdom. Okay, So boundary-crossing, restoring, and absorbing nature of Jesus' kingdom. So if you close your Bible, Bible app, would you open it again to that passage, Matthew 8, beginning at verse 1. I'd love you to follow along with me as we jump back into this series through Matthew's gospel and consider the greatness of this kingdom that Jesus, whose birth we just finished celebrating, came to bring. Okay, so let's look first of all at the boundary-crossing nature of Jesus' kingdom. Boundary-crossing nature. And although this is such an important part of the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring, it's not immediately obvious, actually, just by looking at the text until you understand a little bit more of the history, kind of like what was culturally and historically going on in Jesus' day. Uh, if you consider, first of all, Jesus' interaction with this uh, man infected with leprosy in verse 2. Look with me there. Uh, the, this term, leprosy, in Jesus' day included any number of different infectious skin ailments, including what we know today as Hansen's disease, which uh, has some of those uh, characteristics of uh, loss of discoloring of the skin, um, loss of sensation in the hands and feet, which can lead to all kinds of Im injuries where you would lose different appendages. Uh, this disease is entirely curable today, but in Jesus' day it was not. Uh, and so therefore, out of concern for the larger population, all the way back in Leviticus, God laid down a perpetual statute that someone infected with a skin disease needed to be quarantined from the rest of the general population to keep everyone from being infected. Which maybe that sounds archaic, maybe that sounds cruel, but the reality is, even today, 
Countries all around the world, actually, with less developed medical systems uh, apply this very same quarantine right now because they know their medical systems, their hospitals can't handle mass COVID patients coming in, and so they apply some of these very same standards of quarantine today. Actually, it's, it's kind of weird as I was studying on this. Uh, what we read about the stipulations involved for those infected with leprosy in Jesus' day, outside of being quarantined, um, apparently uh, you had to remain at least six feet away from others. You had to cover your mouth when speaking to anyone, and you had to let someone know as they came near you. You had to let them know that you were infected. It sounds actually a lot like someone infected with COVID-19 today. The situations, the circumstances seem almost identical. But along with being physically or, or medically excluded, someone with leprosy was also spiritually excluded. Um, they, they, they couldn't even enter into the city because they needed to remain outside, but that also meant they couldn't enter into the temple. So they were excluded from public worship, corporate worship with God's people of any kind. And if anyone came into physical contact with them, that person who touched them in any way, came in any contact, would themselves become unclean until they had submitted to their own period of quarantine. So already we're seeing that. And yet look at the Jesus just like crossing right over those boundaries of purity in order to heal this man. Not only coming right into his presence, rather than just simply you know, standing at a distance and pronouncing some healing over him. Look at verse 3. He reaches out his hand and touches him before he's cleaned him, before he's healed him of leprosy. He just crosses right over those boundaries, right into this place of need and brokenness. Next, we see Jesus healing uh, the servant of a centurion, both the centurion and his servant, undoubtedly Gentile people. And, and yet, Gentiles, although they weren't totally excluded from worship, were certainly kept at a distance. They were kept to the outer courts of the temple, not allowed to enter right into the inner courts of the temple. And, and while Jesus doesn't enter into the centurion's home, um, which, uh, as we also know from that part of history, would have made a devout Jewish, Jewish person also unclean. If you go into a Gentile's home, you're now unclean. He offers to. If you look at verse 7, he says, I'll come into your home and, and, and heal this man. That's why the centurion's like, no, don't come into my home. I know what that means for you. So we see Jesus not only crossing purity boundaries, he's crossing racial boundaries. Lastly, in healing Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus, Jesus crosses gender boundaries in healing a woman, which in and of itself, no, that, that's not necessarily that big a deal that she's a woman. But the fact that healing a leper, a Gentile, and a woman are the first miracles that Matthew records in his gospel of Jesus' public ministry is actually incredibly significant. Because to some degree, women also were excluded from entering into the inner courts of the temple and worship. They were kept to an, an outer court outside where the men only could go. So it's, it's, it's so unique and interesting that these are the first miracles that Matthew lists in his gospel. F.D. Bruner says it this way, one physically excluded, one racially excluded, one sexually excluded from the innermost worship of the community. These Jesus heals first. Through his opening miracles, Matthew says that our Lord begins with the people with whom we usually end. And when you think about what that meant both in Jesus' day as well as what that means still for us today, I think one of the first things it shows us is that the kind of kingdom Jesus came to bring is a kingdom that breaks down boundaries, a kingdom that, that overcomes every barrier to the welcome of God in Jesus, which isn't to say that every boundary is wrong and bad. I mean, I think 
with the example of the quarantine of the leper person. That, that was a good boundary put in place to protect the wider population. So it's not saying every boundary is bad. Jesus came to get rid of all boundaries. No. But what it says is that whether it was right or wrong, helpful or hurtful, important or irrelevant, Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom where every boundary is overcome and the welcome of God is offered to all. That's the kind of kingdom that, that Jesus came to bring. Even, even the boundary of our sin, which kept us separated, which kept us quarantined, if you will, from the presence of God. For as Bruno goes on to say, not only did Jesus break down the outer wall, letting in the leper, and then breaking down the walls to the court of Gentiles and the court of women in the temple, he says this, quote, at the cross, Jesus will then split the veil to the holy of holies, letting in everybody. He's breaking down every boundary to access to him. Which means if you're listening to this message right now and you are certain or someone's made you feel certain that you are presently excluded from the welcome of God because of your past, because of some present circumstance, what this passage is showing us today is the welcome of God is available to you now today and for all time. The, the, the way to him has been open for all time. And what it also means is that if you're here today listening to this message and you're sure that someone should be excluded, that they must be excluded because of their past or because of some present circumstance, that, that means you are neither operating according to the kingdom principles that we see outlined here or the example of the king himself. Who, who are the people that are excluded today, particularly in religious communities? Jesus says those are the people that he came to bring the welcome to as well. The door is open to all. So that's the boundary-crossing nature of Jesus' kingdom. Next thing I want us to see from our passage is the restoring nature of Jesus' kingdom. The restoring nature. And while that first point dealt with the different boundaries that Jesus crossed in order to perform these different healing miracles, this point has to do with the purpose of the miracles themselves. And that, that purpose, no question, was to reveal Jesus' divine nature, reveal his divine power to be able to actually carry out these otherwise impossible things because he was God. Which, interestingly, it seems like the Gentile centurion seemed to get better than everybody else. Uh, he understood, apparently, the best of everybody. He was just kind of like, yeah, I know you could come to my house and heal this person. That's fine. But listen, uh, as a man who speaks with the authority of the emperor and people obey, I believe you speak with the authority of God. And so you just need to say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus is just like, wow, can we get more guys like this uh, in the community, please? In fact, even uh, near the end of his gospel, John 20 uh, the Apostle John writes, Jesus did many other signs, many other miracles, he says, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe that he is the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, no question, Jesus' miracles reveal his divine power and his authority over all creation, very much standing like that first Colossus in a place of, of power and authority. But, however, that's not the only purpose of Jesus' miracles. For in his own work on this passage, Tim Keller notes how Jesus' display of power is so noticeably different <clears throat> from whatever you might see with uh, someone like with superpowers or supernatural ability. 
What he notes is that the reason Jesus' displays of power are so different is because they're not simply naked displays of power pointing to him. It's not just like, look what I can do because I have these superpowers. They are pointing to where he wants the world to go. Jesus' miracles, the purpose of them, are pointing to where he wants the world to go. And the direction Jesus' miracles are pointing, which in turn reveals their other purpose, Keller says, is both pointing back and pointing ahead. Which means, first of all, when Jesus heals some disease, when he frees someone from oppression, when he uh, uh, cleanses some uncleanness, first of all, he's pointing back to the way he originally created the world to be. He's pointing back to his original design for creation and saying, I'm, I'm bringing, my kingdom is a place that's like I originally designed this place to be. So Keller adds this, I love it. He says, therefore, Jesus' miracles are not primarily suspensions of natural laws. They are the restoration of natural law. I like that. <clears throat> but then Jesus' miracles, they're also pointing ahead. Pointing ahead to the day when Jesus returns. Where, as we saw in that Narnian poem a few weeks ago, wrong will be made right again. The last effects of sin's wintry curse will at last give way to spring. When heaven and earth will become one and all the beautiful results that we saw there in Revelation 21 will at last be our reality for all time. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Which means Jesus' miracles are also like a preview pointing ahead to that blessed future reality that awaits every kingdom citizen of his. Revealing, as Keller also notes, that Jesus is no happier with the way things are presently than you or I. But it's important to remember in that point, it's a preview of a future kingdom that he is bringing. It's no good saying, well, if Jesus brought this kingdom of healing and restoration, why is my friend still in the hospital? Why are we still struggling with all these things? It's a preview of a future kingdom, the kingdom that he will bring. He's saying it's going to be like this. So it's the same as you can't say, I've seen the trailer for the new Spider-Man movie. Why haven't I seen Spider-Man movie? It's, it's a trailer. It's pointing ahead to what the movie will be like. It's not showing you the movie. The same thing here. Jesus is pointing ahead to the kingdom that he is bringing. And what that means is that the restoring nature of each one of Jesus' miracles that we have listed for us here reveals not only is Jesus' kingdom a place where he reigns in sovereign, as a sovereign ruler over all creation, where all must obey his every command, his kingdom is also a place of healing, of restoration, of new life. A kingdom, as J.R. Tolkien said, where he makes everything sad come untrue. And as one author went on to add to that, Quote, makes everything sad come untrue in that the things that have been lost when restored will somehow be greater and more glorious for having once been broken and lost. Which means, if you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven yourself, right now, presently, not only is this a hopeful reality that we look forward to, as we just discussed this past summer in our or fall, I guess, in our New Vision series. This is a practice, a, a effort, a goal, a vision that we also move towards ourselves as those who we want to be ministers of gospel renewal. Maybe not necessarily that we come around healing people. I don't know, maybe. But at the same time, we have the same goal in mind, 
that in every place in this world where we see brokenness, we see the world out of alignment with God's original design for his creation, we work to bring it back into alignment with how he originally designed it. So that's the boundary-crossing nature of Jesus' kingdom, the restoring nature of Jesus' kingdom. Last thing I want to look at together with you in closing now is the absorbing nature of Jesus' kingdom. And we need to look at this in particular because of the way that Matthew concludes our passage today there in verse 17. Look with me. Where he says this, all these healings that Jesus performed, he says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I said at the beginning of this series that Matthew's gospel is a gospel of fulfillment uh, where Matthew reveals all these places to his primarily Jewish audience of all kinds of prophecies and promises of God in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus. And he'll he'll quote that Old Testament passage and say, this was to fulfill blank uh, here. So we're seeing another one. We just haven't seen one for a while, so that's why I mention it to you, but really since chapter 4, we haven't had one of these fulfillment texts. But in pointing now to this prophecy from Isaiah 53, which we read this morning and saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of that, these healing actions are the fulfillment of that passage, what Matthew is saying is that while the purpose of Jesus' miracles and his healing ministry was both to present him as the sovereign ruler over the kingdom, as well as to inspire hope, for this restoration of all things to come, the way Jesus would accomplish that restoration would not simply be by commanding sickness and suffering and oppression to cease. He would accomplish that new kingdom by taking our illnesses and bearing our diseases himself, by by absorbing those things into himself. So the broader context of that passage that Matthew is referring to from Isaiah 53, uh, we we read this morning uh, in our time of worship through song. It's a passage we often read around Easter because it points ahead to the debt-canceling sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf where he absorbs both our sin as well as the effects of sin in this world in his death on the cross. Let's just look at it quickly one more time. This is where Isaiah writes, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took on our infirmities. Here's our quote now. And carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, struck down and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I'll acknowledge, it's a mystery. It's a mystery to me, both what Matthew and Isaiah had in mind when they're trying to help us understand the way Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom where he absorbs both our sin, he pays the penalty, but somehow absorbs the sin as well as the effects of sin in the world. I just acknowledge, it's a mystery that I don't fully understand how that works and is coming. I think we're shown hints of it in our passage today, for instance, when, when Jesus, first of all, touches the unclean leper, because of course, in, to touch an unclean person would make you unclean, so Jesus becomes unclean himself and leaves the leper now cleansed. 
So there's a sense of some kind of exchange that's taking place. We see it in places like Luke 8, where the woman with the hemorrhaging touches the hem of Jesus' robe, and as she is healed, she believes, if I can just touch, I'll be healed. And Jesus turns and says, who touched me? I, I felt power go out from me when, uh, when you touched me. So it's, a, it's in some mysterious sense, he loses strength in order to give it to others. I'm not saying that Jesus had some kind of limited amount of strength, that you know, he had to be careful how much he used, but, but it's, it's saying that there was some kind of an exchange that took place, especially when we understand what Isaiah 53 is here. Jesus takes our weaknesses. He takes our infirmities on himself while giving us his strength, giving us his health in return. Keller notes this as one further example of how Jesus' displays of power were unlike any superhero or Greek god that we could imagine. For where, let's say, Superman's strength makes him invulnerable to attack. You can't spear Superman. You can't nail him to a cross. You can't kill him. But Jesus' display of power is to make himself vulnerable, to make himself attackable and killable in order to take our infirmities and carry our sorrows upon himself. It's an absorbing ministry that he came to bring. But in trying to somehow get our minds around just what does this look like, how does it work, um, I know of no better attempt to help us kind of try to understand it than Walter Wangren's poem, The Ragman, which I want to read for us here, and I'll close with this. But as I read this, I want you to think about those three people that Jesus heals in our passage today. And I also want you to think about your own life. Think about your own place of brokenness, of suffering, of hardship that you would bring to Jesus and have him touch and heal and take on. He writes this. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange like nothing in my life, my sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child, hush now, and I will tell it to you. Even before dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling out in a clear tenor voice, rags. The air was foul, that first light filthy to be crossed with such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself. For the man stood six feet four, his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a rag man in the inner city? I followed him, my curiosity drove me, and I was not disappointed. Soon the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into her handkerchief, uh, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me a rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. And he slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean that it, its new tint, that it shined, and she blinked from the gift to the giver. And then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. 
It says, a wonder. I breathed to myself and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from a mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see shredded curtains hanging out of black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity and he drew, a, he drew out a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers and I gasped at what I saw for without, with the bandage went the wound and against his brow ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. Sun hurt both the sky now in my eyes, and the ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked a man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy? Sneered the other. And he pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cuff stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket and so did the ragman and I trembled at what I saw for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve while the other put it on. He had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman only had one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched and wizened and sick, and he took that blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk he left new clothes. And now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm and stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick, yet he went on with terrible speed. On spider's legs, through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next until he came to its limits and then rushed beyond. And I wept to see the change in this man. I heard to see his sorrow. And yet I had to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old rag man, he came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And I waited to help him in what he did, but I hung back, hiding, he climbed a hill, and with tormented labor, he cleared a space on that hill, and then he sighed, and he lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket, and he covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. And oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junkyard car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope, because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man, and I cherished him, but he died, and I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know, how could I know, that I slept through Friday and Saturday, and it's night too, but then Sunday morning I was awakened by a violence, light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face, and I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the ragman folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow or age, and all the rags that he had gathered were clean and shined in their cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head. 
And trembling for all that I had seen, I walked up to the rag man, and I told him my name with shame, for I was the sorry figure next to him. And then I took off all my clothes in that place, and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. And he dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him. The rag man, the rag man, the Christ. Christ. 